You can never control another person. One of the most beautiful things I think about parenting that is low pressure to me is that it is the most powerful environmental influence on our children's development and, and the only environmental influence that we have control over because there's nothing else in the world we have control over except ourselves. So once you realize that, it's really awesome because you're like, you know, you let go of trying to the other parent or how they're going to parent. You let go of trying to manage how the teacher is going to teach your kid. You let go of how the food at the other person's house is going to be. You just really realize, you know what, that is not in my control and it's only going to get me into a tense place with someone else. I can just control myself and the rest is not up to me. I'm Amy. And I'm Abby. And as women, we are constantly comparing ourselves to others. But your life isn't supposed to look like hers. Being your best self means standing firm in your decisions and always being willing to grow with a purpose. We get vulnerable and real with an honest look into the challenges and triumphs we all face. Every woman listening gets the opportunity to choose what life looks like for herself. I couldn't be more excited for this interview today. We have the honor of interviewing Dr. Eliza Pressman. She is the co-founding director and director of clinical programming for the Mount Sinai Parenting Center. She has a PhD in developmental psychology from Columbia University and is certified in parent management training from the Yale Parenting Center. She hosts the incredible Raising Good Humans podcast, of which I base most of my parenting on. Ah. (laughs) Dr. Lisa, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself? Um, Sure. Hi. Thank you for having me. And you're so kind. Those are such, seriously, thank you. What an honor. Um, What else can I tell you? I do also have a private practice that I share with another colleague I went to Columbia with um, called Seedlings Group, and we work individually and with moms. So we have a lot of mothers groups. Um, And so I feel like I have one foot in research, one foot in um, one demographic kind of at the hospital and in teaching, and then one in the the world of actually the real stuff that's happening and and the combination keeps it really interesting and and exciting and then when i'm not feeling interested and excited i have my two daughters <laughs> <laughs> to keep you busy <laughs> so that keeps me busy yeah and one thing that I absolutely love about your podcast is how relatable it is. Even with all of these titles and degrees that you have, you show us that even you find <laughs> day in and day out parenting challenging. And your guests, yeah. who a lot of them are also experts, do a great job of voicing the same. Why is that an important part of your message? Well, I'm so glad to hear that because it's the the most important part of my message because there's one thing to look in, you know, to think about science and, and I love, I, I, I take great comfort in science because it feels less emotional and it gives me guidance, but I am passionately opposed to thinking that that's it and that we're robots. And so it's important to acknowledge that, that I can have, I have a lot of 
information at my fingertips. And a lot of it goes out the window in the mo- in the heat of the moment. And that's okay. And the only benefit I would say to having that background is that I'm okay with that. So I'm not as hard on myself. Um, I think sometimes much to my children's chagrin because sometimes they're like, are you supposed, do you feel like that's the best parenting advice you would give to someone else? And I'm like, it is not, but I am not a robot. So I think that's um, a huge compliment. And I, I believe that every one of my colleagues, maybe not everybody, but pretty much all of them would feel the same. We might have extra tools in our toolkit, but we're still, you know, every child is unique and every experience is unique. As you guys know, because with multiple children, you have different experiences as a parent. And I would never want that to get lost in the pressure of just having the science behind it. And, and here's what you can do as a parent. And that shines so bright, not only in the emotional pull that you have just on the podcast and in all of your resources, but just all the tools that you are able to give out, not only on Instagram, but on your website. So it's just been awesome to be able to follow you there. And we received so many messages for you. We couldn't possibly fit them all into one interview, but we're going to start diving in. And as we were talking before this, we recently added our third baby to our family. We have a teeny tiny little newborn at home and also two older kids. Kiddos. So mm-hmm. our listener, Erin, asked, what are your best tips for helping siblings transition into their new role? And I'm going to add this one in here. Is it any different for families going from one to two versus two to three? Wow. Um, I would say, first of all, how delicious to have a baby right now. Oh. That's so <laughs> congratulate. I mean, I don't know if Thank that you. feels so delicious, but what an exciting thing. And this is the one time the babies I think are the, the lucky ones in this situation that we have going on um, because they really don't need anything but you. And um, so I guess in terms of transitioning with siblings, just making sure that it's not this forced idea that it's going to be um, is really important going from one to two because once you go from two to three, everybody's aware of that. And you have shared experience that um, another sibling can, you know, impart their wisdom. And you'd want to bring that other sibling into the conversation, even if they don't think they remember and they don't consciously remember having a new sibling, it will feel good for them to kind of be an expert in that area. And um, it's important to create scenarios where, siblings are taking care of each other. They are friends. They are um, family that treats each other as friends. We know from research that that's really important, but there are times when you get sick of your family and there are times when you want space and that's okay. So making sure that you honor that there are times that you can have mixed feelings. Like I both am excited and love this baby. And also I don't like this baby and I wish this baby didn't have to be here. And those two feelings are totally okay to happen in the same body and reassuring kids that they can have mixed feelings, even telling them about experiences you've had with mixed feelings, either when you had a new sibling, if that happened, or use another example, can help them feel good about whatever's going on inside of them. And as a follow-up to that question, when we brought our third little boy home, our oldest was just about 
or just over three. And we experienced a big sleep regression with him. I know other parents have experienced like potty training regressions. It seems like sometimes the older siblings have kind of a big reaction in in a different type of way to the new baby being brought home. Is there anything we can do to avoid that? Or does that just sometimes come with the territory? Well, it definitely comes with the territory. There are a couple of things that you can do just to be strategic about it. One is don't make any, if you can help it, and sometimes it's just not possible, try not to make any new transitions or big transitions in any category within six weeks of having your baby before or after. Um, Just keep things as routine as possible which again, I know is not always possible. So you just do the best you can. And really honoring routines as much as possible is going to be even more protective because what tends to happen is, you know, with all new changes for us, we kind of get like, "Mm, well, I feel guilty or this day is crazy and this was my only time with you. So let's you know, stay up a little bit later, any of those kinds of things that happen, it can kind of become a cycle. Really, kids feel so safe with the structure of their routines. And being flexible about routines is also something important to do sometimes. Now is not the time. Oh, so interesting. Um, Staying on the sibling topic for another question, it seems like sometimes parents have a really high expectation of sibling relationships. I've learned so much regarding this topic from listening to your podcast. And a lot of times with my four-year-old and my two-and-a-half-year-old, they just need to be told, it feels like you two might need some space from each other right now instead Mm -hmm. of like forcing them to play together nicely. So Mm -hmm. we received a lot of questions around how to improve sibling relationships. Can you give us your best tips and maybe including when it might just be best to let them have their own space? Sure. Um, So we, you know, Overall, it's wonderful to teach kids to sort of be part of their little tiny community in the house. And we kind of, sometimes you have to do something you don't want to do. Sometimes your sibling has to do something they don't want to do. And that's okay to be a little bit uncomfortable. However, if you really want siblings to connect and get along, you have to give them space to disconnect and not turn that into a big drama. And so those are times when kids just keep, you know, those moments when they're just not respecting each other and just fighting. And you can just tell that they're just not going to regulate themselves until they've had a little bit of space. And that's when you can say exactly what you just said. Um, The other thing is that when you do kind of guide young children as siblings, think about being as objective as possible, like you're the guide, not the boss, and you are the witness, not the judge. You never want to have one sibling be always wrong and one always right. And no matter what, if you are making a judgment, whoever is hearing it is hearing that you always side with the other one. You may. I mean, the truth is, some of us do have a preference, not not that we love one of them more, but we just tend to side with one of them more. And so you want to just fight the urge because there's always two experiences with two people or three. And so if you can just state 
I see that this happened. You're, you know, you're showing me that you feel this way. It looks like the, you know, it looks like you really wanted to play with the blue blocks, but your brother was playing with them. So you took them versus, you know, saying straight out of the gate, you did something wrong. You knocked over your brother's blocks. So you're really trying to witness. And when you witness, you give them space to sort of hear what happened and sort it out. And if they need help, you can give them language to use better communication. And sometimes you can, if they get a little bit older, as they get a little bit older, you can reverse it. Like you can say, I want to hear what happened, but why don't you, just to be playful, like why don't you pretend, What? tell me one of your, two of your kids' names so I can use their names. Max and Trey. Okay. So Max, I want you to tell me what happened as if you're Trey. And Trey, I want you to tell me what you think happened as if you're Max. And first of all, it lightens it because they have to imitate each other. And second, it helps them learn perspective taking and try to step into the shoes of how their their other sibling felt. And it may not work in that moment, but over time, it will become a habit that they now have ingrained in them, which is, I wonder how this other people people, I wonder how this other person is experiencing this moment. And you can become a much more empathetic person. And lastly, like with my kids, I definitely got some eye rolls as they got older and I still do it sometimes. <laughs> but um, if if that happens, they they tend to bond together and it connects them. So one a worst case scenario, they then turn against you and I'm okay with that. I'm okay if they are like, ugh, forget it. You know what? The argument isn't worth it because we don't want to play your weird game. You know, it's it's funny when you're saying all this because it's something I picked up from your podcast prior And one thing that I was doing, and I didn't even realize it, was that I was always having a higher expectation for Max, the oldest. And I was kind of always thinking that he should be able to regulate better. Um, And I was telling my husband, I'm like, I was just listening to this podcast and she was talking about how you don't want to always make it like the oldest sibling's fault. And he was like, oh my gosh, I hated when my parents did that. They always thought that everything was my fault. So sometimes we're doing these things and we don't even really realize it. Yeah. I'm actually, I'm really glad you said that. One thing that always helps recognize those moments because it's so true. We tend to really take one of those sides and it's often the expectation is that even though you have a four-year-old, let's say, and that four-year-old on the planet is very new. All of a sudden, once they have a younger sibling, they're like, our expectation is that they're a 16-year-old or a 19-year-old, and they understand language better, and they know better, and they have more impulse control, but they're still really little, and things are fraught, and we need to just step back and remember that. The other thing to think about is that in order to recognize those moments, before you ever intervene or say anything, take a four-count breath where you count to four in and count to four on the breath out, it stops you from being reactive. And then you're much more able to be present and look at the situation instead of just protect the younger one. Now, obviously you can't do that if somebody is like choking someone. You have to, <laughs> you have to separate them from hurting each other's bodies and then you can take a deep breath. But apart from the physical protection that deep breath will help you see clearly. And when you see clearly, you have that moment that your husband had of like, oh, right. I hated that. My parents did that all the time. 
when there was just so much judgment around it. So when you said that and taking more of the witness role, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's exactly what it is. If you're judging the situation, if you're judging that four-year-old because you think that they should know more because they're older, automatically it just puts us in an interesting spot there. Yeah. So yeah. Let's stay on this longer because you had a really good interview with Professor Adele Diamond oh, where you yes. talked yeah, where you talked about the executive function. And for our listeners who don't know about executive function, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it includes <laughs> things like self-awareness, inhibition, working memory, really that self-regulation that we have as adults. Mm-hmm. And it develops over decades. That's so, right. When we think about most parents, I mean, I know myself, I have very, very high expectations for our kids. And I try to remind myself, I've had 34 years to develop this control and I still get it wrong sometimes. Um, and my children, right. they're brand new at this, you know, four, yeah. two, and just barely here. That's exactly right. And it is so helpful to remember that. So our brains develop in, in a kind of funny way where... it's kind of bottom up. So the top of our brains, it's not really a top to bottom, but let's picture a house. The top of that, the attic is built last. (laughs) So if the, so that's your prefrontal cortex. And that is where executive function is housed. So all of those skills that we want our kids to be good at, you mentioned working memory, attention, self-control, impulse control, the things that allow us to have the response that we're desperately hoping our kids are going to have takes up until between 18 and 27 years to develop, which means that their prefrontal cortex couldn't possibly respond the way ours does. We've had all our whole lives to get better at it and our actual brains haven't fully gotten to a size that they can, that those muscles are just not there. So when you're aware of that and you think, oh my God, I've been practicing not getting pissed for 34 years and I'm still getting excited about this and heated up. It gives you so much more compassion for your child being reactive in a moment where normally you might say, oh my God, was that really worth getting so upset about? Yes, it was. When you don't have a fully developed prefrontal cortex, it most certainly was. Wow. Up to 27 years old. Okay. Typically Um, it it develops faster in girls. Um, Oh, perfect. I have three boys. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let's go into that. (laughs) Let's go into that and talking about just the relationship with the partner on discipline. Mm -hmm. So it's so important. Like we all know it's important for our parenting to align on discipline. And if you're on two separate islands right now, we've had a lot of people ask about just being so separated from their partner and not being on the same page. And one of our listeners, Terry, asked, how do you even start building a bridge to really meet in between? Right. (laughs) Um, Well, first, you have to do something really hard, which we don't typically do before we have kids, which is kind of funny because when I say it, it's very obvious we have to come to terms with how we were parented ourselves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we have to think about the parenting style that we were parented in and what parts of it we want to borrow from and what parts of it we're like, definitely want to do the, uh, you know, stay away from. And once we've kind of looked at our own parenting and it's never, you start today, you, you recognize that you have habits and natural tendencies that may seem really unfamiliar to someone who didn't grow up in your family. 
So what's obvious to you, what's home to you, what makes sense to you is because it was part of your entire wiring and your partner was not wired in a similar setting. And, and so recognizing that you both were wired in different environments and now are coming together to raise someone else gives you a lot more space to say, so what, what can I take? What do I really want to hold on to from how I was parented? And talk to each other about it and talk to each other about the parts that really trigger you. Because a lot of times we're responding, we're separated, not because of our own opinion of something, but from this subconscious triggering that occurs when you see a behavior in your partner that just reminds you of something unacceptable or opposite of your childhood. And so when you can have that conversation, then you can come together in a much, you know, there's your bridge. But if you haven't really thought about how you were parented and how that experience impacts all of our behavior, no pressure to parents, but it just does. If you haven't come to terms with it, you can't be conscious of what you're doing. And if you're not conscious of what you're doing, you can't build that bridge because you'll just defend your position instead of try to understand the other person. Mm. So interesting. I know too, like just now that I'm a parent, I listen to podcasts and read books and I'm much more interested in this type of thing. Um, So bringing your partner on board with some new ideas or things that you're learning, Mm. it seems like that's tough for some couples. Yeah. Is there any like advice that you would have if that's a struggle to present new information? Well, I think if you, if you present new information with the opening of, here's what I realized about my experience being parented, and here's what I wanted to seek out in learning more, I thought, you know, this, this is what, where I land. This, this feels right for me. I wonder what you think is a lot better than, I found this parenting podcast. It's right. And you've been doing it wrong. (laughs) Um, So just follow this. So there's much it. So if you go in with curiosity and you say, I'm so curious, this speaks to you. And if this feels familiar or interesting. And so, so already you, you know, that helps, but also you're going to have situations where a parent isn't interested in taking that time or is just like, that's not for me. In which case, that's okay because you develop your own relationship with your child. And over time, the other parent can see, oh, that strategy may be working a little bit better for for this relationship. Maybe I want to borrow from it. But sometimes you just can't, I mean, not sometimes, you can never control another person. One of the most beautiful things I think about parenting that is low pressure to me is that it is the most powerful environmental influence on our children's development and and the only environmental influence that we have control over because there's nothing else in the world we have control over except ourselves. So once you realize that, it's really awesome because you're like, you know, you let go of trying to the other parent or how they're going to parent. You let go of trying to manage how the teacher is going to teach your kid. You let go of how the food at the other person's house is going to be. You just really realize, you know what, that is not in my control and it's only going to get me into a tense place with someone else. I can just control myself and the rest is not up to me. 
Oh, Dr. Aliza, you led us right into our next question here because (laughs) one of our um, listeners, Hillary, she asked, how do we share our parenting views with grandparents if they consistently watch our children? And I know nowadays, a lot of grandparents are being relied on for childcare, whether that's a choice or the circumstance that presents. Um, Is there... I know you said we can only control ourselves, but I could see why it would be important for a parent to want there to be some consistency in the parenting for like a steady caretaker. Um, Yeah. So if you're paying somebody, you can certainly give them your guidelines and help them learn from how your parenting style or the parenting style you choose. If you're, if you're hiring your parents or your in-laws, you really have to, I mean, look, I, I'm also, I've had these conversations where I'm like, you know, dad, stop telling the girls they're beautiful. You know, like stop telling them they're brilliant. It's going to mess with their confidence. And you think you're boosting their confidence. And I've been like, mom, please, you know, I'm definitely very um, bossy. But, um, so I, it's really hard not to, or, you know, I've, I've said like, we really try not to use that language in front of the kids. You know, I've, I've, I've tried a lot of things and this is kind of, we just are not really doing TV before bed. Like I, I, you could do your best, but you will be much, you will be a much better parent and much less angry if you just let go of trying to make the grandparents into the parents that you are and share with your children the reality. And you can say this explicitly, you know what? We make some choices in our, in our household that grandma and grandpa don't make. And so when you're with them, that's okay. But here we're sticking with, you know, whatever the boundary is. It's a lot easier. It's very hard. I mean, of course, believe me, I got books for my parents and my in-laws. I'm sure they were thrilled. You know, I mean, given what I do, you would think that it would be received, but I mean, and it was from my, like my mom, who was also a teacher was like, oh, it's so interesting. So much has changed. But my father and my in-laws were like, that's poppycock. (laughs) You know? So I think and, and it could have been something so ridiculous. Like I was like, you know, the thing is the earlier they go to bed, the later they sleep. So we're going to really just stick with this 6 p.m. bedtime. And they would just be like, but she's not tired, you know, and, and keep her up. And then sure enough, my I remember my youngest would get up at 5 a.m. instead of 7. And I was like, that's because you did that. But um, but I I did learn with age that no matter how many times I said it, and no matter how many times there was evidence, it didn't really resonate if they don't want it to. And so the, the, the reason is because whenever you have something that you want a grandparent to do that is different than what they would normally do, there's this tiny little underlying message of you blew it with your kid. And so I'm, I want you to do better. And so it, it can be taken a little bit harsher than we realize even if we're not saying that, there's just that message of like, I'm not learning from you. I'm teaching you. And that can feel really crappy as a grandparent. And so it's just there. And we know from research that having a relationship with your grandparents 
is more important than having a relationship with your grandparents who are really good at setting boundaries and being sensitive. <laughs> so if, you know, as long as it's a, a, a decent relationship, of course. So biting your tongue a little bit may serve you. But of course, when they're with you every day, you know, if they're really helping out, you do want to try to give as clear of a schedule as you can. And if it's, you know, a parent that you're comfortable with, say, listen, I need to figure out some way to get this across because it's, it's, you know, taking a toll on how we're doing this, how we're planning on raising our kids. So I was wondering if we could talk through the schedule or I was wondering if we could just talk through and pick the things that are most important to you and then drop the other stuff because it's not going to be important in the long run. Mm, yes, you said it so well right there. And biting my tongue is something that is really hard for me to do. But I did learn that with our first, I like micromanaged like crazy. And with our second, yes. I kind of waved that white flag and was like, hey, <laughs> do what you need to do when you're there. Just we are going to keep our big boulders in place. Amy and I were talking before about just keeping the biggest things. Like these are the things that are important to us. Everything else we're just going to kind of let slide and it helps all of the relationships. So not only your relationship with your child, but the grandparents or the in-laws relationship with the child and then your relationship with them. So just kind of that trifecta. And we know that discipline is really hard to navigate with in-laws or any type of child caregiver, but discipline is also just as confusing for us as parents. So we had a ton of questions come in about toddler discipline and what to do let's just start. What to do during a tantrum? So Micah, he's two and a half. He melts down for things like the color of his plate and getting the wrong type of spoon. And I would have loved to give him a different plate in some of these situations, but maybe they're in the dishwasher or my hands are busy with something else. So there I was with plate gate sitting there with a screaming toddler. So can you offer some suggestions on how to make it through any of these toddler storms, whether it is a plate or something that is maybe more serious? Um, okay. So with a tantrum, and by the way, this goes through adolescence. <laughs> oh boy. Okay. So we're just getting started, um, Amy. We're just getting started. Well, I mean the response, the tantrums change, right? Like <laughs> hope, hopefully by age four, your child has really reduced any kind of tantrum behavior. Mm -hmm. um, but it's still there's adults have tantrums. It's just it's just how you kind of respond doesn't change necessarily. Um, it just you always start in responding to a tantrum with taking a deep breath, so that you're entering into supporting your child with your own regulated self. Because if you start like responding to a tantrum with your shoulders up and a tense, even body language or physiology, like your heart rate's going faster, you're just like clearly going into a stress brain, your child will pick up on that. And young children and adults co-regulate, people co-regulate, especially young children. But that means that you kind of borrow, I'm, I'm grossly simplifying this, but you sort of borrow the regulatory responses of the individual in the room with you. So if somebody walks in the room really angry, it always it's very rare that you can just not feel any of that, right? Even if you feel calm and you might approach them with calm, you have to take a second to check in. Otherwise, it'll just up your level of stress. So when you are looking at a toddler and they're getting upset, 
and they freak out, the first thing you always want to do is take a breath because you always want to teach, you're modeling for them the space between reacting and responding. And it's a tiny space, but it saves you from a lot of heartache over time. So that's the first thing. And it's nothing to do with the kids, which is the easy part. And then depending on their age, like you never really discipline a tantrum. You can't discipline a tantrum because they're in the middle of it's, there's a horrible saying, don't teach a drowning child how to swim. I don't know who made it up. It's horrible, but it does explain this <laughs> because imagine that you're in a state where you just can't learn because you're, you just need to, to get, you need to get back to breathing before you can learn anything. Your brain is just like seeing red. So once you breathe and get yourself into a calm state, then you can either sit next to your tantruming child so that they feel your physiology and they feel your calm and they see that you're waiting for them. You're not punishing them. You're not indulging them. Like you don't need to chase after them to make them feel better and try different things. Or, you know, if you didn't let them have the blue cup, but now they're freaking out, you don't have to give them the blue cup, but that you're sitting comfortably in their discomfort and not flipping out about it is a huge gift. And then once they're calm, and some of them might need a hug or a back rub, you can do whatever they need to get themselves back to zero, except for give them the thing that they're tantruming over. Does that make sense? Yes. (laughs) I might have to make some parenting adjustments. So you wouldn't like some people give like punish kids for tantruming which isn't very useful because it's like they can't even hear you. When, like, or if you talk through a tantrum, if a child is upset but they can hear you, they're not tantruming. If a child is screaming and tantruming, you could – there's nothing – they can't hear you because if you try at home screaming and then have somebody talk to you, you can't hear them. So you want to wait before you say the wonderful empathetic thing that you're going to say – or even if you do feel like you have to reprimand them, none of it, it falls on ears that cannot hear. So first you're going to take a breath, then you're going to physically be available if they need you, unless you have three kids and you need to like take care of the other ones. And then you say, I love you. I'll be right over here when you need me, but I have to take care of the child that you just punched or whatever. Um, And sometimes if you can't talk, all of that can be said with body language. Because how your facial, we know as mothers that our facial expressions and, and like where our shoulders are can, can say plenty. There are kids who, you know, I know that I can look at my kids without saying a word and they know if I'm serious about what I just said, if I'm in a laughing mood, if it doesn't matter, if it matters, you just can say a lot with your face. If I feel compassionate, it's all there. So you give them that face that lets them know. I see you. I see that you're going through something hard. My body's available, unless it's not, for some comfort. This blue cup is not available because I gave it to your brother or, you know, whatever the boundary is. There's another thing that you can do with tantrums with really young children. Under two years old, you can redirect them and it usually works. Not because you're not honoring their feelings, but because you have to get through the day. There are three kids, you know, 
one flipping out, just it's not going to work for you. So the whole honoring their feelings is great, but life happens. With younger kids, you can usually say like, oh my gosh, let's flip the light switch. And it changes their attention and the light switch goes on and off. And now they're looking at the light switch. Or you can give them a replacement for the thing that they desperately wanted. I can't give you a cookie now, but should we make cookies with our pretend playset? You know, all of those things tend to work. As kids inch toward two, they're like, mm, no, that's <laughs> not going to work. So you could certainly try the distraction, but you don't want to always default to distraction because they need to know they will get uncomfortable in life. And that is awesome because it's a gift. It's a gift to find out that you're not supposed to be happy all the time, that you are going to be disappointed, that somebody can't always fix that disappointed feeling and that somebody loves you no matter what. That was so good. So much to take in there. Um, We received so many, I'm sure you can imagine, we received so many toddler discipline questions. So we're going to try to squeeze just a little bit more knowledge out of you on this topic. (laughs) Okay. Um, Recently, my two and a half year old Trey he he does have a tendency to scratch or hit his older brother when he is upset. And that's one thing that I just feel like we can't tolerate. Yes, yes. Um, so I had a conversation with Trey and I said, Trey, did you scratch Max? And he said, yes. And then I said, okay, we can't scratch people because it hurts them. And then Trey responded, I didn't know that. (laughs) He's like, I didn't know that. I "I didn't really know what to say next. And and then to be more serious, the problem that my husband and I bump into is that Drew likes to do a timeout for these big transgressions. Uh And I don't really think that they work. And so we kind of butt heads there because he thinks I let Trey like get off, you know? Right. Um, so do you have guidance for like a two and a half year old that is like getting physical with someone? Like what approach would you take? Yes. Okay. So on the timeout front, you can give a timeout. If you're giving a timeout to teach a lesson, it's a waste of your time. So I just, uh, I, I want to say that just because I can hear that he's probably using the timeout for the wrong reason. If you want to use a timeout because you're basically saying, we need a time away from being with this upset crew and to calm down, that's fine. If you even want to do it as a minor punishment because it'll keep you from screaming at your kid, that's fine. But don't pretend that it's going to change their behavior the next time. That is just to make us feel comfortable like, okay, we're tough guys. <laughs> we did something. So again, it's not going to damage anybody to say, listen, you hit your brother, you scratched your brother, that hurts. Please sit over there in your calm chair or in your like under your whatever blanket, your calm blanket or whatever spot you choose. And I'm going to go comfort the injured. But the teaching never happens in the heat of the moment. So what you first need to do is separate their bodies, right? Like you need to take his scratching hands off of his brother. And then you take care of the brother, make sure, and then you take care of your brother, your brother, your son, to make sure that he's okay as the victim. And then you would say, we cannot scratch. Scratching hurts. 
please keep your hands to yourself. And as you know, you can say, is there something that you can do to help your brother feel better if he's upset? Which you, by the way, you did a lot of those things. In that case, when he said, I, you know, I didn't know that it hurt, you could say, well, now you do. So you can understand that it's not acceptable and you can't do it again. If you're angry, and this is where it's important to let them know, I can, it's okay to be angry and to want to scratch your brother. It's not okay to do it. So what can you do instead when you feel those big feelings? So you want to enlist them to come up with different things. Like, could you rip up a piece of paper? Could you bang on the ground? What are, what are, can you scratch your doll? Like, what are the things that can get your feelings out without hurting another person? And that's a conversation you can have, not in the heat of the moment, but a little bit later. Like, you know, when you scratched your brother, it was really painful and I can't let you do it again. But I see that you get mad sometimes and you have really big feelings. What can you do with those big feelings? Can you think of anything? Now your two and a half year old might say, I can't. Like, I, I, I can't think of anything. And you could say, okay, I'll tell you what, when you have those big feelings next time, squeeze your fists together and say, scratch. And I'll know you are so mad you want to scratch your brother. So you're just giving a little bit of permission to be that angry instead of denying those feelings, but you're curbing the behavior. I'm so glad we have this on a podcast recording because I think Amy and I both do part of that. And now we can fill in the blank with all the other sections as we re-listen. So thank you for going into all those details on all the different ways that we can deal with these toddler tantrums that happen a lot for our listeners and also in our own homes. Let's switch gears. Um, Let's switch gears almost entirely here. And there are so many things going on in our country, as we all know, and it feels as parents that we're getting really, really crunched. So there's work, there's parenting during a pandemic, there's being human during the social injustice movement. It's really been a hard 2020. And as one listener, Jenny, put it, how do I lower my parenting expectations during a pandemic? I'm a mess. So what are your suggestions that you have for people that are really just feeling overwhelmed during this season? Well, the first thing I would say is you should not be a perfect parent, not only because you can't be because, because nobody can be perfect, but also because it's not good for kids. It's not good for children. So it should make you feel better that in fact, if you really want to be that good of a parent, you need to show them that you blow it sometimes. They need to see that you can recover in a relationship when you blow it sometimes. So when those moments happen, take advantage of the repair that you get to teach your children. And it lowers your standards because, I mean, it just can make you feel better that those moments are not um, wasted, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And also, this is not a time. This is just not a time to operate in a way where we're, we're getting the best out of ourselves. It's not possible. It's simply not possible. So since we know it's not possible, it doesn't serve us or our children to pretend that it's possible, that we can just act as if this is all going to be fine and there you know our children shouldn't experience you know less than less than optimal parenting and just 
know that and accept it. And, and the last thing is just kids need the North star of a sensitive and loving parent. Doesn't mean that at all moments you're sensitive and loving. It means that on balance, they look back and they go, my, my parents saw me, they loved me and they, they were there for me. Not every minute, but again, in the big picture of life doesn't mean that you're not like, I'm having my coffee and if I hear your voice, I'm going to scream. It just means my kids know I'm there, even if in this moment I'm not, number one. And number two, they need boundaries. Everything else is gravy. We know this from so much research. It's, they like don't need to do any more research. It's so, it's so overly proven. <laughs> proven at this point <laughs> with neuroscience and with social science and, and, you know, so many different areas of related science has shown us that those are the two things that kids absolutely need to have a wonderful, healthy growth. And that everything else, again, is that extra stuff, which is lovely, but not necessary. You know, and it's, it's just so hard because it seems like there's a lot of pressure on moms and, you know, one could argue social media makes it worse. Um, anytime I show my, our house is usually pretty messy right now. We have like three little humans and two full-time jobs. Oh anytime I show a messy house or my kids having a, you know, toddler meltdown, people are like, oh my God, thank you so much for sharing that. Like I thought that my kids were the only ones that did did that or that my house is the only house that looks like that. Um, uh, and we just, we, I don't know. I just wish that everyone knew that just wasn't at all true. Uh, do you have any tips for women that struggle with that comparison feeling or the feeling like they're never good enough? Um, it's a terrible feeling. I think it's so relatable. I will tell you for whatever it's worth that every parenting or child development or psych person I know, every colleague I have or pediatrician feels this way. And we take a lot of comfort in each other and we're like, wait a minute. If we're all, we're, we're like, this is, this is just a shitty time. <laughs> Excuse my language. <laughs> and, and so, you know, Whatever you see on, I mean, you definitely should turn your social media off if seeing the perfect clean life is upsetting to you because people are typically, I mean, I, I would say people show one extreme or the other, right? The normal stuff is not really that interesting for Instagram. The beautiful or the absolutely disastrous is more fun for <laughs> Instagram. So I think it's great and has it, it brings community together when it's working, but it can be really hard on some people. So you have to know your personality and shut that stuff out if you are finding that what you get out of it isn't camaraderie, it's actually competitiveness or it makes you feel bad. Um, and then remembering everybody, everybody is struggling right now in their own way. Some people more than others. And you are not unique in the sense that you're the only disaster in the room. This is a, this is just a tough time. And so comparisons never, they're just never useful. And we tell our kids that, and if you can, do yourself a favor, and we all should do this. I will do this today as well. Make the voice in your head the voice you want your child to hear in their head. 
And if you hear any other voice, shut it down. Just say, that's not the voice I want my child to hear. And I'm not going to do that to myself either because I know that that will rub off on my kid, even if they can't hear it. Uh, For anybody who's going through that mom guilt right now or doesn't feel good enough, just backtrack like two minutes right now and re-listen to everything that you just said because that is going to be definitely a sound clip right there. That's so important. So important for us, especially in this really, really tricky time right now. Yeah. And I'm hoping that we can continue these conversations in the future. We have so many more questions for you, but we are just so thankful. You've given us so much insight today. And if there's just one last piece of advice that you could leave our listeners with, what would that be? Um, this is very well-timed because I have to take my, – my kids are peering through like, hello. <laughs> um, uh, I would say – my favorite thing to just have as, as my North star with my kids that I pull from research is all feelings are welcome. All behaviors are not. And so if I, I could just go to those things, you know, if we just go to that, did I honor that feeling in myself or my child? Did I put a boundary around it so that it doesn't get out of control? You're good. The rest you figure out later. (laughs) Dr. Eliza, it has been both an honor and a pleasure to talk to you. You have an enormous fan and supporter in me. I'll be listening to Raising Good Humans and sharing it as much as possible. So just to finish, please just let our listeners know where they can find more of you. Sure. I am on Instagram at Raising Good Humans Podcast or at Seedlings Group. And um, then... I guess I have a website too, uh, www.seedlingsgroup.com and mountsinaiparentingcenter.org. And both of those are not just me, but they have lots of um, other resources on them. And thank you again. And if your question didn't get answered today, head over to those resources. They are so easy to just pick up and learn a little bit more from. But thank you again so much for today. Thank you so much. And congratulations to all of your (laughs) your little humans. 